And good morning to all of you. And the youngest children are dismissed for Children's Church. And I invite you to turn in your Bibles to Titus chapter 2 as we continue our series, Healthy Church. Titus chapter 2, and we will read today verses 9 and 10. Titus 2, 9 and 10. Paul writing to Titus, commanding Titus to teach the following, verse 9 and 10, bond servants are to be submissive to their own masters in everything. They are to be well-pleasing, not argumentative, not pilvering, but showing all good faith so that in everything they may adorn the doctrine of God, our Savior. Heavenly Father, Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, we come to you this morning and expressing to you our deep and utter dependence on you to understand your word rightly and to apply it rightly. I pray that you will give us grace and mercy and power to do what you've asked us to do. I thank you for the songs we just sang, for that powerful truth, it's not I, but Christ in me, and oh, how much we need you, Jesus. Please come to our rescue this hour, this day, and the week that is ahead of us. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. So the question we've been thinking about over the last few weeks is simply this, what are marks of a healthy church? So last Sunday evening we had the installation service and thank you again to all those of you who came out. It was a huge encouragement to me personally and my family. But we had some friends over and uh, all of them commented on the fact that, boy, Garden Chapel is a friendly church. And uh, that's a wonderful thing, and it should be that way. But the question is, well, does that show us to be a healthy church? Um, Carl just gave us an updated financial report, and by God's grace, we're doing well. Are we there for a healthy church? Uh, there's a missions trip going on a week from now. Uh, teens are going to Long Island. Does that mean we're a healthy church? Well, maybe, but not necessarily. The question, what are the marks of a healthy church, need to be answered by God, and he has given us quite a few markers in his word. We've seen so far that a healthy, healthy church is marked by believers who are committed to the Lord Jesus Christ, committed to the church. A healthy church is marked by healthy leadership, elders, pastors that lead with conviction and with great humility. A healthy church is marked by healthy doctrine, that the teaching in the church from the pulpit and at every level to every age is biblical truth, not just opinions of man. And we've seen so far that a healthy church is marked by healthy relationships. And that's really the thrust of the passage that begins in verse 1 of chapter 2 and goes down all the way to verse 10. You look again at verse 1, Paul begins by saying to Titus, but as for you, teach what accords with sound doctrine, healthy doctrine. And then he gets very practical 
as he addresses different groups of people in the church. And we've been looking at those groups for the last couple of weeks. We've been looking at who is he talking to, what is expected of these individual groups, why are they supposed to obey God, what's the motive, what is at stake, and then also, like, how are we supposed to carry that out? What ability has God given us to do what he commands? And that last one especially is a biggie. Because God commands, in his word, attitudes and actions that we cannot produce in our own power. We just have to be very honest about that. Obedience to God, submission to his word, can be incredibly different, difficult. So let's say you are in a dysfunctional marriage. To obey God and to submit to his word in that situation can be very challenging. Or let's say you're hopelessly stuck in some kind of an addiction. You don't feel like you have an option but drink or go to that website. And you feel hopelessly stuck. Then to hear the word of God call on us to obey, to forsake sin, to do what is right is difficult. And what I've been impressing on your mind for the last couple of weeks, and we'll do again today, is we need each other in order to follow Jesus well. God has given us his word. God has given us his spirit that lives inside of us, that equips us with power to obey and follow him. But he's also given us his church. As Hebrews puts it, stir one another up to love and good works. So we have considered so far the different groups. We've also seen two weeks ago how Paul addresses Titus individually and charges him with being an example to the congregation, especially to the younger men. Today, we single out one more group, the bond servants, or depending on your translation, slaves. We need to understand that in the Roman Empire, in the context in which Paul writes this letter to Titus, Titus, there was about a 10 to 25 population of slaves. Many of them became Christians and then also became part of a local church. Now that whole world and culture and system is foreign to us. But the application for us today comes in the relationship between the employer and the employee. We'll talk about that in a minute. Before we look at the text, there is, though, an issue that we need to address. And that is the issue of slavery and the Bible. Let me read to you an email that I received a few weeks ago, and I have permission from this woman to read it to you, who is not a believer but who is surging and is reading the Bible. This is what she said, quote, I was reading the Bible last night, and I was reading the rules of slavery. To me, it seems like slavery should have been frowned upon, right? And then listen to how this question casts doubt on the entire trustworthiness of the Bible and the character of God. She so continues, Sometimes I'm not so sure that these words I'm reading are really God's, 
but more so what someone wanted to write to make some laws according to what they wanted. The question about slavery in the Bible is not only asked by non-Christians, but asked by Christians as well, and it's an important question. Why does, not, does the Bible not speak out against it? Why did Jesus not preach a sermon entitled Five Reasons Why Slavery is Wrong? I'm sure most of you have asked that question. And it's an important question because it deals with apologetics. It has to do with it being an obstacle to those who don't know Christ, want to listen to God's word, but say, what about that? Because this is the assumption that is made. If the Bible approves slavery, which is wrong, then why would we trust the Bible when it speaks about other things, especially salvation only to be found in Jesus Christ? So I'm going to take a little bit of time this morning to talk about that. I'm going to give you five facts, and here's number one. Kidnapping in order to sell a human being as slave is condemned in the Bible. 1 Timothy 1.10. In a whole list of sins of disobedience to God, right there between liars and sexually immoral individuals, the term enslavers is used. It can also be translated with kidnappers. We must look injustice straight into the eye and therefore condemn the despicable slave trade and the horror of lynchings that was part of this country in the 19th century on the basis of the Bible. Period. Fact number two. The slavery that was part and partial of the Roman Empire was not like the black slave trade in American history. For one, it was not racially motivated. Many of the slaves in those days lived a normal life, earned an average wage, although they were often not at liberty just to change jobs. They were often slaves out of economic necessity. It was a way to pay off debt in exchange for X amount of years of labor during which they were housed, fed, and clothed. When they became Christians, they were seen as full participate, participants of the church. It was not like the slave trade that we think of when we hear the word slavery. That is reflected in our Bible translation. That is why the ESV from which I'm reading uses not the word slave, but bond servant. And if you read the New American Standard Bible, it still uses the word slaves, but there's a footnote that says, i.e., slaves in the first century Roman culture, because it was a different kind of slavery than what we often think of. Now, we should not romanticize it. Some of the masters were harsh and brutal. Physical abuse took place. Sexual abuse took place. Emotional abuse in that context took place, and all of that is always inexcusable and should be fought against. Number three, 
what the New Testament says to slaves and masters within the system of Roman Empire slavery was revolutionary. What did God say to masters and to slaves? Well, listen to this, Galatians 3.27. Neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male or female, matter, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. There's the case of Onesimus. Remember, he was a Christian slave that ran away, met up with Paul. Paul sent him back, returned him to his master, Philemon. And Paul says to him, here is your bondservant, but take him back, not just as a bondservant, but as a beloved brother in the Lord. In 1 Corinthians 7, 22, Paul says to slaves, if you can gain your freedom, make use of the opportunity. And to masters, God's word says, treat your bondservants justly and fairly. Why? You've got a master. That master is in heaven. And you're going to give an account to him. So treat him with dignity. Fact number four, Jesus' mission was not to overthrow any political or economic system that included slavery, but to bring freedom from sin. That was Jesus' first and foremost mission. That's why he came. That's not to say that God does not care about justice. He cares greatly about justice. But he knows that laws will not change people. The gospel changes people. You can have the most democratic, most just nation in the world, and it's still filled with corrupted and sinful men. You can abolish slavery and still have to deal with oppression. So when Jesus... And when Paul, here in Titus and in other New Testament books, addresses masters and bondservants, we need to understand the culture in which he writes that. We also need to understand he, that he does not approve of the system, but that overthrowing the system was not his main concern. That is not why Christ first and foremost came for. It was going to be the changing of the human heart, the transformation of the gospel that was going to make the difference. And that is fact number five. The gospel and the news of Jesus Christ planted seeds that eventually led to the end of slavery. Because if we truly believe that every person is created in the image of God and therefore endowed with incredible value and dignity. And if we believe that those who accept Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior are bought with the precious blood of Christ, we cannot ever treat anyone as subhuman, as property, as less simply because they are different than we are. The gospel created an atmosphere 
where slavery would weaken, wilt, and eventually die. I know that in the course of history, slavery, racially based slavery, has been defended, justified with Bible in hand, wrongly, I might add, I should add. But it's also true that when you look back in history, it was Christianity that was the driving force in the abolition of slavery because it cannot survive and be compatible with the gospel. So what does God expect? What did he expect of bond servants in that culture? And what, by extension, does he expect of us as employees in our relationship to our employers? This is not the only place that Paul speaks on the issue. You can read about it in 1 Peter 3, Ephesians 6, Colossians 3. And in some of these passages, he also addresses the masters. Here, the focus is on the bondservants. So when we look at the list of requirements, the things that Titus is to teach the bondservants, the first one is a shocker. Right out of the gate, knowing the context in which he writes this, he says, bondservants are to be submissive to their own masters in everything. Wow. The idea of submission literally has in it to place yourself under something or under someone. It's a big theme in the Bible. We've already seen it here in chapter 2 of Titus when it says that older women are to train the younger women to be submissive, same word, to their husbands. So let's think a little bit about that whole concept of submission before we talk a little bit more specifically what it means for the bond servants. So I have seven statements. Number one, submission is an unpopular word. Have you ever seen these bumper stickers? Think for yourself, question authority, or I will not comply. That is our culture's attitude. You critique authority, you challenge authority of any kind. I don't care who it is that says something to you, your default is like, I'm not gonna do it. Who do you think you are? The problem is that that kind of attitude is appealing to us because by nature, we all buck against people telling us what to do. I can think for myself, thank you very much. It's an unpopular word, unpopular concept, but here we run into a problem as Christians because submission, when we look at scripture, is part of God's ordained order. All of us, no one excluded, not me, is under authority. We all submit to somebody. 
ultimately to God. But then God has delegated authority and calls us to submit to those authorities. So, children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Submit. Children, parents. Congregation, elders. Hebrews 13, obey your leaders and submit to them. Same word. Citizens and governments. Look at chapter 3, verse 1 of Titus. We're not going to get to this until we're in January because we're going to do an Advent series in between, but you can chew on this one. Remind them, Titus, to be submissive, same word, to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good work. The authority model and therefore this call to submission to authorities is biblical. Number three, submission must be the default posture of a Christian. Default posture. See how it's different from our culture? So when we're talking about God-ordained authority, our speed dial should be to follow and obey, not to rebel and defy. Speed dial, default, basic setting. Why? Because when we submit to God-ordained authority, by doing so, we submit to God because God has established it and God has commanded us to submit. That's why in many of these passages that talk about submission, like children to parents or bond service to masters, it adds something like this, as unto the Lord. Think, for instance, about the relationship between child and parent. This was a very helpful concept to me in parenting, to realize that when our children were disobedient and disrespectful to me or to their mother, they were not just defying me and my authority. It's not really about me. They were defying God's authority because God said to the child, obey your parents in the Lord. That puts it at a completely different level. It's not like I just can't believe it that you just say that to me, that you treat me like that. Now, I can't believe that you treat God like that. Number four, submission is difficult because we're asked to do something we don't like or we don't agree with. Think about this. Submission is only an issue when we don't agree with something and we have problems with it. If in this church decisions are made by elders, pastors, and you say, man, I'm on board, go for it. You're not submitting, you're agreeing. Submission comes up when you're in those situations where God calls you to do something and you struggle with it. You don't like it. It doesn't seem right to you. It demands self-denial and faith in God that he knows what he's asking when he says, submit. When he labels that as a good thing. Number five, submission will be rewarded by God. So listen to how Ephesians 6, talking about the same thing, same topic, in verse 8, 
speaks to bondservants and their masses, because they both have to submit. He says this, when you follow my instruction, and I'm quoting Ephesians 6, 8, you will receive back from the Lord. So this is what it means. There is a reward promised by God on the other side of submission. Is it hard for you to obey God in that marriage that is shaky? God knows. He keeps track of your desire to obey and follow him when it's so hard. It will not go to waste. You will reward it. Are you struggling with some kind of a habit that you cannot kick, but you know what the word of God says? You choose to submit and to obey because that's what he asks of you. It will not go to waste. It will be recorded in his book, and he will reward you for it. He promises. Number six, submission does not keep you from respectfully opposing or appealing a decision. Key word is respectful. Slandering, rebelling, grumbling against leadership that God has sovereignly placed over us is, biblically speaking, not an option. But respectfully opposing or appealing, whatever that looks like, is. Remember Paul? He was arrested. When they tied him down and they were ready to just beat him, he turned to the soldiers and said, hey, is it lawful to beat a Roman citizen? And the answer was no. He appealed to the laws of the land. Number seven, and lastly, submission does not mean we blindly follow orders. Listen, there are times where you have an obligation not to submit. There are times where we should not obey laws and directions or directives if they go against the word of God, not personal preference, word of God, and dishonor God. That is the implied qualification in that phrase in everything. That's what it says. Bond servants are to be submissive to their own masters in everything. In everything? The point of that phrase is what I just said. The default setting should be submissive, submission. But we know that Scripture clearly commands us that we should obey God more than men and when anyone or any institution commands us to do things that are against God's word or forbids us to do things that are commanded by God's word, we are commanded by God not to comply, not to submit, because we submit to him first and to him foremost. That doesn't answer all the questions we have, does it? But at least it puts us on the right track. Bond servants, be submissive to your own masters in everything. 
He adds a few more things, so go through them quickly. Bond servants are to be well-pleasing. Well-pleasing to their boss, sure, but there should be a higher motivation, and that is to make God happy. It makes all the difference in the world. When you get up in the morning, you go to work, or you work from home, you work in government, healthcare, factory, retail, food services, doesn't matter. And our desire and our prayer is, I want to please you. I want to please you, God, in this difficult job, with this challenging employer, with these colleagues that are making my life miserable, with these standards that I have a beef with. I want to please you. Show me how I can please you more than anything else. It's about you. It's not about me. Well-pleasing. Not argumentative is the next one that Paul mentions. And again, we can and should stand up for biblical truth and for convictions in the workplace, but there are acceptable ways to do it, and there are unacceptable ways to do that. Argumentative is not acceptable. Being mouthy is not acceptable. And the rule of thumb is that we should not do it in such a way that it undermines God-established authority. Paul says, Titus, teach bondservants not to pilfer. Put yourself in a bondservant situation. You can understand that can be a temptation. You don't have much. Perhaps you're being mistreated. So now you have an opportunity to steal money, food, jewelry, anything that you don't have that you really feel that belongs to you. Today, perhaps, it's more cheating on your timesheet that can be a temptation or only working when the boss is around. All these things are understandable temptations, but God says they're never right. Not pilfering. One more. Showing all good faith, or it can also be translated with faithful. Are you a reliable person? Trustworthy person? Dependable person? Honest person? About a man who was once asked by his boss, when the phone rings and they ask for me, tell them I'm not here. And the guy said, you're right here. I know, but just lie. I don't want to talk to him. You know what this guy's response was? It's classic. He said, sir, I cannot do that. But you should be glad about that. Because if I am not willing to lie for you, you also know that I will not lie to you either. I'm a person of integrity. Because that's the God that I serve. So what is at stake? A lot. God commands it, that should be enough for us. He's God, we're not. But we've also seen in this passage already twice that he gives additional reasons. We saw in verse 5 how we, if we disobey God, if we defy him, we hinder our evangelism. But look at the one in verse 10. It's mentioned right at the end of this list. 
of qualifications for bond servants. To be submissive in everything, well-pleasing, not argumentative, not pilfering, showing all good faith. And here's the reason, here's the motive. So that in everything, in everything, they may adorn the doctrine of God our Savior. So what does that mean? Well, let's start with the word adorn. When you adorn something, you make something pretty. You enhance it. You decorate it. So if you come into my office right now, the walls are still empty. I have some decorations, some pictures and stuff. It's still on the floor. I haven't had time to, to hang it up to, yet. But once I do, you'll say, boy, that's, that's an enhancement. It's, it's, a, it's decoration. It makes it more nicer and feel more at home, more comfortable. The word to adorn in the Greek language has the idea of ordering, arranging, beautifying. It's actually the word from which we get our word cosmetics. So here's the question. How do you reach the lost? I hope you have passion for those who don't know Christ, who are on, a, on the road to hell unless they turn from the sin and receive forgiveness in Christ. So how do you reach them? Number one, you have to communicate truth with words. You're going to have to tell them about Jesus somehow. Share the gospel. Share your testimony. Witness. Talk about God and sin and Jesus and cross forgiveness. Communicate truth with your words. Here's the second thing, and that's what's at stake here. You commend truth, E-N-D, with your life. So you teach it with your words, you communicate truth with your words, and then you support it, you commend it with your life. And here's the problem. If you say, you know, this world is full of sin, and we can see it because people rebel against God, they're anti-God authority, and we see it in, in, in all in areas of life. Look, look at it. You go to a store, and there's children just throwing a temper tantrum and just rebelling against parental authority. And, and then think about how all the people that don't give a rip about traffic laws, and it's dangerous. We can't say that and then in other areas be anti-authority ourselves. We confuse people. So we show the beauty and the truth of the power of the gospel if in childlike faith we trust and we obey even when it's so stinking hard. It is one of the hardest commands to follow. Very difficult at times. Therefore, we need one another. We need those healthy relationships where we can go up to people and say, will you pray for me? Because this is where I'm at. I know what God's word says. This is the situation, and I just, I just, I just can't. And I want to give up. I want to run away. If you look at my heart, I want to rebel and defy. I want to do my own thing. Or here's a situation, I'm just struggling. I know what God's word says, but this is what I'm thinking and what I'm feeling. Can you help me with the Bible to understand it correctly so I will apply it wisely? 
I want to obey him more than anything else. We need people that remind us, hey, the one who commands us is the same one that gave his life for you. He's not against you. He loves you. Trust him, and I'll be right there for you. This is hard stuff, people. After the first service, I had a conversation with four people. And one person says, that was a good sermon. I said, thank you, very kind of you. I'm encouraged. Someone says, that was a hard sermon. And I said, I know. I know. That's why we need each other, dear friends. And so, as I close, let me once again give you some suggestions on how we can grow in healthy community deep so that when we get to these intersections in our lives where the commands of God are difficult for us to fulfill, we can go to him, we can read his word, we can rely on the Holy Spirit, and we can be a help and a comfort to one another. So here we go. Some of three of them sound familiar, but I'm repeating them again. Number one, pray for one another. I'm going to put all four up right away. Oh, I'm sorry. I completely lost track. Um, pray for one another. Here is what I'm convinced of. If everybody in this church would set aside 10 minutes a day, that's all, 10 minutes a day to pray for one another, and I've suggested use the church directory for that. Think about the people that sit next to you in church. Read the praise and prayer. Know what's going on in church. If every person would consistently pray 10 minutes a day for one another, I'm convinced it would revolutionize our church. Why? Because we would tap into God's power. Absolutely. But you know what's going to happen? It will open our hearts wide for our brothers and sisters. You can't pray for people without loving them. I had a time in my life where there was someone in my life that made my life, in my judgment, absolutely miserable. And I could not pray for him. I just could not. Correction. Well, I would not pray for him, but I could not pray for him because there was so much anger and bitterness in my heart. You start praying for people, you'll love them. Talk to one another. Again, we got to get rid of that knee-jerk habit that we have to only talk to people that we know, that we like, or that are in our age bracket. We got to break that mold to get to know one another. You go up to someone you don't know, you know what you're saying in so many words, you matter to me. I'm glad that you're here. And incidentally, it will help you pray for that person. Meet one another. To be committed to the local church. Why? Because that's where God's people are. Why do you go to church? For God, to worship, and to fellowship? The church is God's gift to us. Warts and all. And we need it. Remember what God said in the beginning, the book of Genesis, 
about Adam after he created him, after he said, after each creative day, it was good, it was good, it was good, and then Adam was created, it was very good, and then you read that God says it is not good that man be alone. This is before sin entered. So the need for community is not now because of sin, it's by God's design. So make church, I'm not just talking Sunday morning at quarter to 11, make the gathering of the saints Wednesday, other moments, two or three together, make it a priority. And finally, care for one another. I'm sure all of you, if you're on the mailing list, know that this past week, Ed Craig's wife, Jill, passed away unexpectedly. That's hard. Do we care about that? Do we come alongside people? Do we shoulder other people's burdens? We can't be all thing to all men. You think about Jesus. He sent out 72 disciples, then he sent out 12, and then within the 12, there were three that he was very close with, that he had a, a, a closer relationship with, Peter, James, and John. You can't have high-level intimacy with everybody in the church, but what about hearts? This last week, I've been reading some stories, and with this, I close, from war, military, um, and I came across this story that just captures this last point. There's much to learn from us as a church, from the military and the way they care for one another, sacrifice for one another. So this is a true story about two men, Jim and Philip. They went to high school and college together, and then after college, both of them joined the Marines, and they found themselves in World War II in Germany. During a fierce battle, they were given the command to retreat. Jim noticed when he retreated that Philip had not returned his friend, and so he panicked. He begged his commanding officer to let him go, but the officer denied his request, said, man, this is suicide. You stay right where you're at. A short time later, Jim, at risk of his own life, disobeyed, went after his friends, after his friend, ran into the gunfire, calling out for Philip, and a few moments later, the platoon saw him hobbling across the field, carrying a dead body in his arm. The officer yelled at Jim, shouting that it was a waste of time and a huge risk. And then he added this, your friend is dead, and you could do nothing to save him. To which Jim replied, no, sir, you're wrong. I got here just in time because before he died, his last words to me was, were, I knew you would come. That's church. Let us pray. Oh, Father God, We thank you for your word, and we admit that at times you ask things of us 
that are beyond anything that we can do and often want to do. But we never have to doubt your love nor your wisdom. And we're so thankful that you have not just commanded us, but you've given us reasons why. And we're thankful for that. You didn't have to do that, but you did. And Lord, we're thankful that you not only commanded us to submit and obey to you and to the authority that you've placed over us, but you've also equipped us to do that. You've given us your word, you've given us your spirit, and you've given us your church. Oh, Lord, we pray that we will grow deep together so that we will be a church that prays and cares and meets one another and talks to one another where no one stands alone, no matter who they are or what they are like. Father, we ask it in Jesus' name, for it's only by his sacrifice on the cross that all of this is possible. Thank you. Thank you for the blood that was applied to each one of us. Give us your strength as we go through our day and our week, as we face our own battles, our struggles, our frustrations, and our doubts. May we lean heavily on you, and may we lean heavily on your church. We pray in Christ's precious and powerful name. Amen. Thank you, and God bless.